Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. From the KALX Studios in Berkeley, California, I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, enzymes, straws, and H5N1. Joining us today is Dr. Charles Paul to talk about methane hydrates of the ocean. Also, you can find out what a blue moon is. All this, plus the Rockotron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming up right here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of nobody in particular. You're not the voice of happiness? <laughs> well, I didn't take my Prozac this morning, so... <laughs> okay. Just the voice of general level of sanguine. <laughs> As life should be, right? Indeed. So, I don't have an animal this week, but I do have a quote of the week. Well, hopefully the quote of the week involves an animal. I guess a very well-known biologist, whose name I don't remember, once said... <laughs> Must not be very well-known, then. It's in my circle, but... But he said something to the effect of, if we kill off all the bugs in the world, humans will die out. But if we kill off all the humans, all life will flourish. This is actually related to my next story about mass extinction. Oh, very nice. The prevailing theory about how mass extinction happened in Earth's past history was a large meteorite hit the Earth and put up this cloud that destroyed all life. And, right? right, blocked the sunlight, prevented plants from growing. So David Bodger, who's at USC, has a, a new theory based on a study of the records, uh, fossil records at the time. What happened 250 million years ago was that 90% of the species just died out. But it looks like before that happened, the species were slowly dying off, and not because of the meteorite, but because the environmental conditions were changing at the time to the point where the planet was just simply toxic. And he suggests that there was probably something like a global warming effect going on, uh, which screwed up the ocean's currents and basically put out all this dangerous chemicals into the atmosphere, notably uh, hydrogen sulfide. So this was trapped hydrogen sulfide in the ocean, but it was slowly being released. Right, by microbes. Hmm could be an indicator that you know deterring environmental conditions could have the effects of mass extinction. It would have to be a meteorite, certainly anything that's acting on a global scale right. in that way, sure. Right. His understanding is that it just didn't die out within one year or a moment. It was over several years or decades. Right, right. Very interesting work. It was actually published in Science. Extinction from H5N1. Bird flu. The bird flu, our favorite bird flu. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared. It was such a sexy name, too, like H5N1. So the avian influenza virus, of course, people were wondering, why is this thing so virulent? A group of researchers in Ho Chi Minh City, uh, led by Menno De Jong of the Hospital for Tropical Diseases, began characterizing what's actually going on in some of these patients. Mm -hmm. It's linked to the strength of the immune response that it evokes. These researchers found elevated levels of inflammatory molecules known as cytokines and chemokines Mm -hmm. in the patients that had H5N1 as opposed to just regular flu. And so this overinflammation may have contributed to things like respiratory failure in the patients that contracted the disease. 
do they suggest any ways of combating the H5N1 by knowing this mechanism? I think this is more sort of an epidemiological type study okay. trying to determine exactly what's going on. Right. I think probably the people who are developing vaccines for it, going about it the standard way. Right. But this is very fascinating work anyway, just showing how H5N1 is so deadly and published in a recent edition of Nature Medicine. So, Charles, do you feel swell? Just groovy. Okay, I'm feeling swell. Are you swelling with pride? No, just with enzymes. <laughs> they like to conglomerate in different parts of the body. So we know that enzymes are biocatalysts that metabolize certain reactions in our body, but they're also useful for a lot of commercial products. For example, shampoo, so we can use it to break down oils very quickly, and also for uh, detergents. But the problem with these enzymes, they denature pretty quickly once they're in the environment, especially if it gets too warm. And so one of the challenges is how do you keep this enzyme working in your shampoo once it's been on shelf for a few months? So back old Dave at the uh, Southern Illinois University, they've devised a method using silica gels to craft these enzymes by swelling them. These gel beads swell up with the enzymes, and when you use them, they'll be released, time-released, or slowly released in such a way that it'll be used in the right concentrations also to preserve them until they're being used. I see. So it's basically like a time-release capsule. Yeah. It seems like a good idea. Why didn't people do this before? Sure, people have thought about it, but probably getting the right gel or the silica-type beads that can do it effectively has mm-hmm. been a challenge to synthesize. Right. I think also people uh, try and modify the protein itself to try and make it a little more stable as well, right, so right. it doesn't degrade. Isn't that called like, directed evolution or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure what it is, but if you call anything evolution, be prepared for a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I believe they were created. <laughs> Intelligent design. <laughs> yeah. This was reported in a recent edition of Advanced Materials. Well, you know, chemists are doing all kinds of great things with encapsulating biomolecules, I just heard, and apparently now devising nano straws. Now I can sip that Coca-Cola extra, extra slow, huh? Uh, Or extra, extra fast, I suppose. Depends on how quickly it diffuses through that. But Uh (laughs) So this is work done by George Whitesides and his colleague at Harvard. Ah, the great George Whitesides. You know, he and uh, the great George Blacksides, it's an evil battle. that (laughs) By George, right? Yes, who will win, white or black, I don't know. But they've developed a group of molecules using complex polymers and gold to build these uh, tube-like structures that are about a few nanometers wide Mm -hmm. and a couple millimeters long. Okay. It's uh, quite interesting because these pore structures have different types of structures. One has like a polymer core surrounded by a gold shell electrode, and others contain adjoining gold and polymer segments. And they suggest that if you actually fill the hollow segment of this uh, tube, you can create very efficient light-emitting or light-capturing materials. Oh, cool. So uh, more possibilities for uh, organic-based light bulbs, huh? More efficient displays for your cell phone. Cool. And this was published in a recent edition of Nano Letters. And that's all for a weekly look at the world of science and technology. In a few moments, Dr. Charles Paul joins us to talk about methane hydrates under the sea. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show you're listening to, so... Stay right there.
Berkeley Rocks, well, it's been known for a long time that large deposits of methane hydrates lie at the bottom of the sea. The supply of natural gas from these sources could greatly impact the demand and supply for energy around the world. Yet, little is known as to what would happen on the climate if these deposits were extracted. Recently, research shows that these have been lying dormant for many years, but certain seismic events could have an impact on their release. And joining us today is uh, Dr. Charles Paul from the Ambari Institute to tell us a little bit uh, about his research on methane hydrates. Uh, Dr. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, could you tell us uh, what is Ambari and uh, what is your research goals? Uh, Ambari stands for the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and it, it's a... Uh, uh, institute that was set up to develop uh, new instruments and techniques to uh, study the ocean um, and we uh, uh, develop technology and tools and do science to uh, attack problems in the oceans. And uh, with your research on uh, these hydrates, what, what exactly are, are these methane hydrates and how much is do you estimate is trapped uh, under the uh, ocean's floor? Well this is a question that's been uh, very much on people's minds. Uh, there are estimates that indicate that the size of the gas hydrate inventory in the oceans is very large. Uh, these estimates uh, go up and down um, uh, with time, but they're always big numbers. And uh, uh, you know, if, if one compares any of these estimates with the amount of methane that's in the uh, uh, the current atmosphere, um, it, it's very uh, plausible that uh, one could tap um, um, gas uh, hydrate bearing deposits in ways that could perturb the the. Uh, of the atmospheric concentrations and the ocean concentrations in ways that are quite uh, um, perceptible. And this has been something which has been much discussed in recent years and it's very difficult to get uh, uh, real information as to whether this has actually happened and whether there are plausible mechanisms to make this happen. And so with these methane hydrates, um, I guess industrially people are interested in using the natural gas for primary economies, but as you also mentioned, uh, the release of these methane could certainly increase our concentration of greenhouse gases to a level that could uh, significantly alter our uh, atmosphere and our ecosystem. And so with regard to your research, are you worried that these developments could actually happen uh, in terms of uh, environmental impact or are you satisfied that these hydrates could remain stable and be used in a responsible way? Well, I mean, I, the people that work on, uh, on methane hydrates or funding agencies that do it usually uh, are, are, are funding this work because of the interest in the potential resource uh, value or uh, because of the possibilities that the gas hydrates represent a, uh, a hazard or because because of the interest of this being a large carbon reservoir that, that uh, uh, may uh be responsible for the perturbations of the ocean atmospheric reservoir. Now, um, am I uh, worried about it? Uh, the timescales of gas hydrate release are longer than the current uh, global warming uh, scenarios are. So, in terms of in terms of there being large events involving the gas hydrates in the time period, that's not really a that's not a, a concern or an issue in comparison with uh, uh, other emissions uh, to the atmosphere. I, I do believe that the gas hydrates uh, have not been adequately evaluated as a potential hazard to our existing uh, hydrocarbon infrastructure in the seafloor. And I do think that the uh, scenarios of gas hydrates are playing a role in the natural slope failures that we see over time remains very credible. Uh, for the ocean basin gas hydrates, I think it's still a ways before one can talk about uh, production that brings gas to uh, in, into the market. Uh, 
But for the economic part of it, the Arctic area is the place which is of uh, most realistic, and I think that that's where efforts and the plausibility of producing gas from gas hydrates will be play out first. And uh, with your current research here, uh, you've studied uh, some of these seismic events that have happened uh, in the uh, area around Norway. Based on these research data, you've been able to clarify how uh, this gas gets released. Uh, what are your latest findings? Uh, off the margin of the continental margin of Norway, um, there is a huge uh, seafloor scar that's believed to be associated with a landslide that took place on the Norwegian continental margin uh, about uh, 8,200 years ago. This was an event that left, uh, gave rise to a tsunami that was uh, um, uh, larger than the ones we've just seen in the Indian, Indian Ocean. It was a very uh, uh, profound event that washed through the most of the North Atlantic. Um, this landslide scar uh, involved uh, uh, on the order of 3,000 cubic kilometers of material. Think about it, that's a big number. 3,000 cubic kilometers of material. Um, now, if that amount of material um, th uh, basically uh, fell off the continental margin and rolled by the, the, the forces of gravity into the deep basin, one uh, uh, has to consider what would happen to the, the gas hydrate that was once in that sedimentary, uh, sedimentary section and uh, whether the, the gas hydrate got out of, of that section. So a few years ago, we had a uh, cruise to assess the gas inventory in the region of this landslide scar. The, some of the results of that cruise were that we found that the, the gas profiles that you can get by uh, collecting sediment cores from the, the side of the scar are consistent with there being gas uh, hydrates at uh, relatively shallow depths, but when we went to the sole of the slide, the area that the, the sediments had been removed from, we no longer found evidence that uh, of, of strong chemical gradients, which suggested that if there was gas there earlier uh, at one point, it's gone, and it actually probably left well before the last major Stariga slide event. It turns out that we also know that there have been multiple events that have occurred in that area over longer periods of time, so it's possible that the gas has gotten out earlier in the Pleistocene. And is there a correlation uh, between the, uh, the temperature records of the Earth and the release of uh, methane during that time? Well, there's been a lot of interest in, in uh, geologic records to explain the um, a signal that is commonly seen in in, uh, in records that you get from deep sea cores that are the records of past climate that are affected by temperatures and other conditions on the earth and one a signature that has excited and interested a lot of researchers uh, is our spikes that one sees um, in an isotope of carbon, carbon-13 uh, and uh, these spikes are are also in a direction which are consistent with the unusual isotopic composition that's associated with methane. So there are these signatures that go through the whole geologic record, these uh, abrupt changes in the carbon isotopic composition that will be consistent with methane coming into the system. And a lot of researchers are thinking about these questions at a number of places on the, on the timescales. And um, it, it's not clear that these uh, signatures 
are in fact associated with the methane. Uh, some of the early data that's come in on that is not uh, uh, consistent with that, but it's still an idea that has uh, considerable uh, academic interest. Great. I guess we are running a little bit out of time. Uh, are they, um, what are the biggest mysteries that uh, you're still trying to solve these days? Well, I'd love to understand what the mechanisms are that would bring gas from the gas hydrate deposits uh, to the seafloor and what the, how um, this gas gets out into the, into the ocean atmosphere system, if it does at all. Great. Uh, Dr. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, my pleasure. And we were just talking to Dr. Charles Paul of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, also known as AMBARI. This is Berkeley Grok, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what a blue moon is and the question of the week. So stay right there. My name is Borat. In my country, we say that Moon is a lady, a happy lady, but sometimes she's sad, so she is the blue moon. But the blue moon is caused by dust from fire and volcano, and that's how the moon becomes blue. Oh, oh, oh it's Mr. Mitzoplex from the other side. In the fourth dimension, what is the hypercube? Email us, grocks and hotmail.com. Not anything when in the fourth dimension. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lane. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs>